welcome to the Next Gen Cast and episode 17. My name's Nish Manik, I'm a GP registrar in Cambridge, and this episode is with Dame Barbara Haken. So Barbara's immense personal contribution to the NHS has spanned four decades as a clinician, a manager and a national leader. She worked both as a hospital doctor and as a GP for about 20 years before she took up her first role managing the NHS. First, she was a primary care trust chief executive in Bradford and then a strategic health authority chief executive in the East Midlands. She went on to become national director of commissioning operations at NHS England where she helped to oversee the establishment of CCGs, as well as being Deputy Chief Executive of the whole of NHS England. She was described as the Chief Executives, who was Sir David Nicholson at the time, right-hand woman and a forthright and skilled operator, and she was often called things like the most influential woman in the NHS during her time. She's definitely left an imprint on many leaders in the NHS during her time. Because when I asked around about her, comments came back like, Barbara's worked with the top brass in the NHS and probably has more insider knowledge than anyone I know. Other comments were, she's five feet of pure steel and an absolutely class act. So I definitely was a bit nervous after hearing some of those comments. But hopefully what you'll hear is a conversation which I think offers an amazing insight into the history and evolution of some of the structures of the NHS from someone who's been around for a long time and worked in it for 40 years and seen them evolve, as well as someone who really knows what she's good at and can give some tips about how to lead when you're only five feet tall, which I definitely need. And just to say, if like me, you get a bit lost with some of the structures and the three-letter acronyms that are used, I've added some links and a glossary in the show notes, which I hope might help. So here's Dame Barbara Haken. Welcome to the Next Gen Cast. And Barbara, it's such a privilege to speak to you today. Thank you so much for doing this. We're here really because after I recorded with Martin McShane in episode 13, I asked him, you know, Martin, who should I speak to? And he instantly said, you must speak to Barbara Haken. And he said, and I quote, Barbara's career from GP to Deputy Chief Exec of the NHS and beyond embraces a wealth and depth of experience which is unsurpassed as a clinician. So a big statement which instantly made me curious to learn more about you. So thank you very much for being here. Most welcome and uh, I must say thank you to Martin for such kind words. So I also can't think of anyone better to interview during our International Women's Week that we're celebrating because you have been called on many occasions one of the most powerful female leaders in the history of the NHS. So let's unpack that a bit and I wondered if we could just start at the start if you don't mind. You were a GP for 20 years before you went into management as far as I understand. Could you tell me a bit about that beginning? So what made you think I want to have a role in running the NHS? Um, I don't think I ever had such a a cogent idea uh, as that. I I think, you know, if I look back on most of my career, it's been happenstance and serendipity. Not that I don't feel hugely privileged because I had a wonderful career in the NHS, you know, 40 odd years. And I do think I had a huge advantage because I sort of had two careers 
So I was a GP for many years. I absolutely loved that. I wouldn't have wanted not to have that in my career. But then, you know, when I was about 45 or so, I moved slowly and quietly into management and started a new career, which is an enormous privilege because, you know, almost whatever we do in life, some of the bits of it get boring. So to have that big change in the middle was really lucky. But I think um, what happened with me, and I mean, I also have to go back to the very early days of, uh, of, of development. And uh, I remember one time when uh, I was at a confed conference um, and uh, a lady called Diana Jeffries, who at the time was the chair of the confederation. I was a GP doing a bit of fund holding at the time, and I'll come back to that. Um, but Diana, I said something about, you know, it'd be really good to be a leader. And Diana said, well, Barbara, you are a leader. You're a really strong leader. And actually, that had never occurred to me. And I think, again, young people sometimes do need some help recognising those qualities. I, mean, I thought I was just bossy. And, and I suspect there are many people who would say, well, yes, Barbara, that is absolutely true. But I think that what happened with me, I went into general practice. I was probably naturally, you know, I was the head girl. If you look back at things like that, I was the captain of the hockey team. I went into the practice as a young part-time GP and quite quickly took on some of the responsibilities for the staff and dealing with the accountants and the more managerial side of the practice because I enjoyed that and, and seemed to be fairly good at it. Uh, but, but I, you know, I was ha- very happy being GP. I had a, a busy husband who was a consultant and two small children. And then fund holding came along, and it was apparent that none of my other partners had any interest in the management side of fund holding. So it was only when I felt that my children were old enough, and I would otherwise normally perhaps have picked up extra clinical sessions, um, that I decided that we would become fund holders and I would become the fund, man- fund holding managing partner. And that was my first dip into, into any sort of uh, management career. And as I said before that, it, it had been very much that I had been a part-time GP. And one of the things I often do also say to, to, to young people who are worrying about work-life balance, you know, especially parents with young children or people who are caring for someone, Work-life balance doesn't have to be on a week-by-week basis or on a day-by-day or month-by-month even. I mean, for me, it was almost on a decade-by-decade. I very happily spent two decades, thoroughly enjoying my general practice, but probably only doing 15 to 20 hours a week when the children were small. And yet, you know, look at what, you know, looking back at what happened to me between being 45 and 65, I ended up working incredibly long hours, um, but at a time when it suited the family. So I think you should, one should just bear that in mind and not feel that you kind of have to gallop at everything when you're in your 30s because there's a lot of life left. Mm, that's really helpful, actually, as a, as a new mum trying to make it all work. I think that's a great bit of advice to kick off with, that work-life balance can be measured over decades, not not even necessarily weeks or months. So. You were telling us about your leadership story. So, yes, so back to the original story. I went into Fundhold. I became the Fundholding Manager uh, for the practice, um, then became um, several of the other local practices weren't doing quite as well as we were, so they said, would I start managing for them? And it wasn't long after that that they decided to invent PCGs. You know, we're one of the many acronyms we've been through over the last 30 years. And I guess I was then, therefore, the natural leader of the PCG, um, which I still did part-time with being a part-time GP. 
And it was only when they made the jump to PCTs and there was a decision to be made about um, who was in charge of the, of the PCT that I had to make a decision as to whether to carry on with any general practice or to go wholly into management. So that was kind of, it, it just felt as if it happened rather than that I had any grand plan. So let's carry on then. So you were, you were PCG leader. What, what happened next? Well, uh, for those who don't remember, PCGs had a clinical chair who was in charge of the organisation. Most of us as clinical chairs had appointed a a manager. Um, But when Alan Milburn uh, decided to create PCTs, and, and and I think pretty much by that time, and it's a different story, but we can come back to, I'd been spotted by the centre, by the national people, because I, I dropped very lucky. I ended up in a patch with some absolutely brilliant doctors and managers. I mean, Bradford in the early 90s and the 90s was so hot with uh, young leaders. Um, so that had kind of caused me to get spotted by the centre as, well as, as well as just locally. So uh, there was a decision to be made when the PCT was created because the PCTs, instead of having a clinical chair and a manager, they had a PEC chair, a lay chair and a chief executive. So the triads that were supposed to be. I was always a bit suspicious of that. And I think this probably goes back to my bossiness. You know, this was my organisation, that PCT. I built it up. I'd, I'd, I'd kind of got it to where it wanted to be. And I didn't really want to give that up. And I felt as the PEC chair, I wouldn't, I would be one of three, but the chief exec, I thought, or the leg would, would, would actually end up having to do a lot of the organising what went on. And of course, some PEC chairs didn't want to be like me. And particularly if you're a doctor going to become a leader, you, you kind of have to work out what your path is. And for some doctor leaders, remaining a doctor is absolutely essential. And I always, and Bruce Keogh and I often have this conversation about the differences between us. So he's not hearing anything we haven't talked about. Bruce is, Bruce would only ever be a doctor leader. Bruce did not want to be a manager uh, who, who didn't have to be a doctor. And I think that's one thing that if you are enjoying some management and some leadership in your career as a a doctor as you go through the years you have to say to yourself which category do I fit into because I wanted to be a manager despite the fact I loved being a doctor I wanted to be a manager I wanted to be able to compete without having my doctor background necessarily as part of getting the job I actually think it stayed with me all through the years I think people never forgot I was a doctor because I've done it for so long in fact many people still call me Dr Haken rather than Dame Barber or anything, and they've called me lots of rude things as well. You know, I, I stayed Dr. Haken to many people. And um, so I think you just need to make that decision. And I, you know what, the, the young people that I mentor that I say, you know, just think about it, think where you want to go because there is a big difference uh, between those two paths. Okay, so that's interesting. You're saying, do you want to be a doctor who manages or a manager who also happens to be a doctor? It's not something I've really thought about before. So what happened next, Barbara? Well, so what happened to me was as they created PCTs and I decided I didn't want to let go of the reins, a very brave health authority chief executive, looking back, I'd had no managerial training or whatever. He said, um, if you want to apply for the PCT, the chief executive of the PCT, Barbara, I will back you because I believe that you can do this. 
and I, I thought long and hard about it because I knew I couldn't I didn't want to don't want to carry on being GP. I would have been way too conflicted. I didn't think you could be the PCT chief exec and a GP in one of the practices. And also by that time, I'd started to recognise how difficult it was prioritising across two different jobs. You know, if you've got a surgery full of patients and a call comes in for somebody who's had something serious at home, you have to leave that set of patients and go and look at the urgent medical problem. If you've got a managerial job and, you know, the Secretary of State wants you, then you have to put that down, whatever you're doing. But actually across the two, that prioritisation is really difficult. And I was beginning to struggle with that. So I knew that at that time it was either stay as the PEC chair and do clinical work or I'm the chief exec. And a good friend of mine said, Barbara, when you wake up in the morning, if you're having a clinical day or if you're having a managerial day, which morning do you wake up and you're more excited and feel like you want to go to work? And I knew when she asked me that question what the answer was. So I say I applied for the job, was lucky enough to get it. Um, and that kind of allowed me to cut my teeth on being a manager across a relatively small geography. Um, and it was 2000 when I last saw a patient and became a PCT chief exec. Now you've mentioned it, can I ask you a question about balancing clinical work with leadership? So you said that you felt you'd be conflicted. What's interesting is lots of the leaders that we've had on this podcast have talked about up until a point, but needing to maintain some clinical practice in order to feel credible. And I wondered, did it ever become a problem that you weren't doing any clinical work? Well, I think that probably goes back to what we originally talked about, about do you want to be a a, a doctor who manages or a manager who happens to have been a doctor? Because I think if you are a doctor who manages, I think you there is some issue with it if you haven't done clinical work for such a long time. But to be honest, you know, I think it's a lot more in people's minds than in reality. It's like riding a bike. You know, how many patients did I see over 20 years as being a GP? I know I don't understand the new pressures which are different and the new technologies, but I think I was always going to understand what it was like sitting face to face with patients. And I think an awful lot of people who even remain as doctor leaders, um, they, they actually get to the point whereby the demands on them of that doctor leader job is such that they can't really keep their clinical practice up because you can't do clinical practice, I don't think, if you do a tiny little bit. You know, I think there comes a point where you're not safe, to be honest, and I think people really have to, to make that judgment. But for me, it, 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 was, it, it was the two conflicting priorities. And again, there are ways some people can say, well, I do this job on one day and you can't have anything to do with me on that day and, and this job on another day so you can get out of those two conflicting priorities. But I, I don't think, I think particularly if you've been a doctor for a long time and people know that you know what doctoring is like, I think it never leaves you. It's never left me. People never, ever don't treat me like a doctor. Okay, so that's maybe a little bit different to what people have said before, but really good to get an alternative perspective. So let's get back to your leadership story, Barbara. I'm intrigued to know how you went from that local leadership into the national role. Well, I was the PCT chief executive across about 150,000 patients, a bit of Bradford for a lot of years. And and I, I do remember and uh, and one, th- one person I would really like to call out, if I call out nobody else at all in this interview, um, there was one person who helped me so much and I have the hugest of regard for her because 
when they first gave me the chief exec's job, uh, there was a, a not very senior, relatively senior, but not very senior manager in the health authority in Bradford called Helen Hurst, who I think the wise old chief exec kind of said, you keep an eye on her because you know, she's she probably a lot of stuff she needs to know. So Helen came across to work for me. And I just learned so much from her for, about management. She had an HR and an OD background. So she helped me with all the, the sort of softer end of management. But as alongside that, all the corporate and uh, you know all the, all the stuff that many doctors find really boring about risk and management and system processes, Helen helped me with. But, you know, again, I would say to all young doctor leaders, your intellectual ability across the board, particularly in the sciences and maths, will take you to anywhere you need to go in, in any managerial job. It's, there are lots of other issues and there are lots of bits of management that are really difficult and you need to learn and they don't come naturally. And it's just in exactly the same way that we would never expect to give a very senior manager a scalpel and let them go do a hernia operation. Uh, you know, in exactly the same way, if doctors want to go into management, they have to take the time and the trouble to learn that technique. And Helen really guided me through and she was just she's just a fantastic manager she just you know I not only learned the learned the ropes from her but she had this wonderful emotional ability to manage and influence people you know I think management is about influence often and how good an influence you are I, I think you know you do need to find somebody that you can trust and is like you. And if you are moving into a management career, we'll just help you through those difficult early years because it isn't easy. So it sounds like with Helen's help, you were getting to grips with things pretty quickly and really climbing this management ladder. What happened next? So I was lucky because I always seem to move up in parcels. I took steps. I have seen people who have been fantastic leaders in one small area who've suddenly been given a national job and they've fallen over because believe me moving from managing across a small geography to a big geography in a complex is very difficult uh, and I nearly fell over at one stage which uh, which we could talk about but for the most part I had these bite-sized steps for management I had by this time Bradford was doing very well and I had been noticed by the likes of Milburn and Blair and you know it's very handy in your life to have a strong political patronage. I think uh, the first thing that happened to me was because my the PCT was successful um, I was asked to run the National PCT Development Programme as well as being PCT Chief Exec. Very few times in my life I've, all, I've only had one job I think the maximum number of kind of big jobs, big roles I had was about five or six. But, uh, you know, I, th- I think if you're a busy person, just watch out because people keep giving you things. Um, but I ran the National PCT Development Programme. Nigel Crisp and Al Milburn asked me to do that. And I was naive then. You know, there were lo- I learned a lot from that and I did a lot of things badly. One of the things I learned was how big England is. Because as a true northern lass, you know, got a bit wobbly south of Barnsley. Um, To my dismay, I had to learn on that, that you have to lead through others. And again, for anybody wanting to move up their career um, in in a leadership capacity, I always think that if you have natural charisma and good emotional intelligence and the right intellectual ability to solve the problem, then you will probably be a strong leader. But the bigger the problem and the bigger the geography, then, you know, the the more complex the problem strategically, the greater the intellectual ability that you need to have to peel layers of the onion and solve it. But actually, the bigger the 
the geography or the number of people across whom you have to lead, then you can't do it all through your own presence. So kind of in Bradford, I knew everybody, everybody knew me. I could lead at a very personal level. And the problem with the National PCT development program was I hadn't realised I couldn't do that. So having to put in place a different mechanism of leading by leading through others, by having your lieutenants and helping them to lead your way, and the systems and processes that that make that happen, I think that's that's really important. But it it was NAPPACT was my first, well, I was still in Bradford, it was my first, you know, going up the ladder and, and, and acting on the national stage and getting noticed by more people. So I definitely want to get into the national stage a bit more, but something you said earlier, I just want to explore a bit more if you don't mind. You talked there, Barbara, about being a sophisticated influencer, you and Helen. That's a word that's used a lot whenever I've mentioned you to other people is very influential. I'd like to unpick that a bit more. So what does influence mean to you? And how, how do you think you've become so influential? in such complex environments? Mm. Um, I, I, I think it's a bit of a gift. You know, I think that there are certain attributes um, that we all have. I, I, I think people are often worried that they should be almost somehow uh, shy about these attributes or, or, you know, that if you say you're good at something, you're arrogant. Um, whereas I kind of think... What am I bad at reaching into tall cupboards because I'm only five feet tall? It's just a matter of fact. Um, what am I good at? I'm, I'm quite bright, so I'm good at solving strategic problems. But somebody endowed me with the gift of being able to communicate well, um, to get underneath people's skins, to work out sometimes what they're thinking I, you know, I think the skill set is very similar to the one I learned as a GP. I wouldn't underestimate the difference and how much you can cut your teeth on this as being a clinician. Because if you think about it, when you, you've got a patient in front of you, the first thing you have to do is understand their story. So you have to find a way of helping them communicate with you. And, and that's almost influencing them. I don't mean it's influencing them to tell the wrong story. But you have to influence them so you can dig deep and get to what's really bothering them and so that you can kind of climb into their skin, you know, because I always think that the best clinicians ever almost wear their patient like a skin because they get absolutely underneath them. Um, then you've, you, you've got this complex set of information, which can be, will be what the patient's told you because could a, a include an array of other things from examination and tests. And that's where the intellectual ability, the managing risk. We manage risk all the time in clinicians. Can, can, is this one, you know, I don't really know what's wrong with this patient. Am I confident enough that there's nothing seriously wrong with them to, you know, to do the wait and see test? You know, so you are risk managing in your head all the time. And, and you know, when you come to management, it's all about risk management. So you do that spectrum of deciding which way you're going, what's your strategy for managing the patients, what, how are you going to manage the risks? And then the next step with the patient is you've got to persuade them to come with you because, you know, nine times out of 10 in whatever you're doing, you have to persuade them that you're making the right move. You might want to give up smoking. You might want to go for them for some tests that they don't want to do. Um, and that, again, is a framing and influencing. Um, so I did, do think I learned to be an influencer when I was I, I honed my skills. I think it's, it's something you've given, but I think I honed my skills as a young GP. 
Thank you. And I absolutely agree. I think that's what we do every day in our consulting rooms. We influence and I think that's why GPs can make very good clinical leaders. Now, you mentioned being five foot and I feel like I can ask this as a fellow five. I'm only five foot one or something, so I'm not much taller than you. And I'm interested to know, I, I when Martin mentioned you, what I remembered was that a few years prior, I had heard you speak at a, an event and I came away thinking, how does this woman who is surrounded by very senior, very experienced, frankly, much taller men have such presence here? And you held the room in a way that really left an impression on me. So I wondered, as a fellow, as a fellow short person um, and a woman as well, how do you make sure that your voice is heard in environments that are very much dominated still by men and probably were even more so in your day? Well, I spent a long time in killer heels. <laughs> that helps a bit. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that's quite a difficult one to answer. I, I think if you are very short, and there are lots of other similar physical attributes uh, that people can have, which puts them in the same position, you probably do feel a bit vulnerable at school. You probably, people take the micro out of you at school. You find it difficult. You know, even just in a room where everybody's standing up, you're craning your neck. And there is something about being short, being, having the feel of being inferior. So I think I probably kind of had to learn how to, how to try and overcome that from the early days. Um, it, it probably makes you feel a bit vulnerable. And I do think I've always, I think if I look back, I think I've always felt I had to prove more than I actually did. And I wish I'd been a bit more chilled about, you know, I'm okay at this and I don't have to elbow everybody out of the way, especially when I was younger. But but I, th I think that being short, you know, started to make me resilient and started to make me feel like I had to kind of find a way to have a presence. I think most importantly, I have to have something important to say. So don't underestimate how much of an impact you will have in terms of people listening to you if what you're saying is sensible. Um, I think there's something about the way that you say it. And I, I kind of learned from early on when I was talking to a room full of people, because there's so many different situations. If, if you're leading, um, you know, you have to be able to manage a, a room full of people. You have to be able to manage one-to-ones. You have to manage small groups. You have to manage, you know, an office that you walk through. And they're all different techniques. And I've seen many leaders who are great at one aspect of those and not so good at the others. But certainly commanding a big room, I think one of the things is, you know, don't read a set of slides out. You know, we, you should have enough to say to be able. And I fortunately was able usually to stand up in front of an audience, know broadly what I wanted to say to them and speak. And I think um, that's why I hold the room. But that, I think that is very different from, you know, how do you how do you make your voice heard on a board where the majority of people are potentially men? Um, and certainly, even if they're women, they're a lot taller than you. I, I never felt, and I have, I've got to be very careful about this, and I've always tried to be very careful about it with other women. I've never felt particularly discriminated against because I was a woman. Maybe that was because my antennae weren't strong enough and I just ploughed on irrespective. But, but I haven't really, even from the first days when I was in medical school, and sometimes, and I, I'm sure you probably shouldn't say this, but sometimes, as a woman, there are sometimes things that you can get away with that, you know, in, in terms of managing men, um, that, that actually <laughs> other men find more difficult. 
Thank you, Barbara. I think that's given me a bit of confidence as someone that's often confused for the medical student in my practice. So we were talking about influence, we're talking about presence, and that leads me on to really wanting to understand your role at NHS England. So you were, let me get the title right, National Director of Commissioning Operations, and you were Sir David Nicholson's deputy um, at the time as well. Tell me a bit about that job. How, How did it come about and what was it like working at NHS England? So from the, the, we'd probably just have to fill a little gap in with the SHAs to make sense of the end time at NHS England. So um, after being PCT chief exec, when, they, um, when all the, the reorganisation came about in 2006, and you know, I've made a career out of reorganisations because although on the one hand they can be quite worrying, um, actually there's usually new opportunities. Um, and I was encouraged to apply for an SHA chief exec's job and um, got the job as SHA Chief Exec for East Midlands, uh, which was a bit off my own patch. And that was, a, you know, that was another, I talked about the big steps up. That was a step up because, you know, you're running sort of a tenth of the country and it was a very different job. I think most of us, when you move from one job to another, you try and do your new job the same way you did your last job. So I, I remember looking back, you know, going into the East Midlands and trying to run an SHA like I ran a PCT <laughs> for about a month and then I I worked out it was different but they were very much more performance management oversight strategic reconfiguration so it was it was a step up from the operational of being a a PCT chief exec and the other thing that I found quite difficult then was having to get the confidence of the chief execs of the acute trusts many of them big foundation trust chief executives And, and actually I remember David Nicholson uh, pushing me to go to East Midlands for that very reason, so that I wouldn't be little Barbara who'd been the GP who'd gone on to be a PCT under this new SHA chief exec. So they were right, it was really good for me. So kind of learning that new role and, and a new skill set, and again, leading across a much wider geography. So as a SHA chief exec, you were part of the NHS top team. The Red David ran the NHS management board. One uh, significant thing I did uh, over that period, which again, uh, really good practice, and I learned a lot, was they asked me to negotiate the GP contract. Fascinating and fabulous experience. And just to go back onto the influencing skills, before I did that, um, I went on a negotiating course before I I set about doing that, because, you know, we were sitting opposite negotiating with the GPC. Um, and so they sent uh, two or three of us on negotiating course with the sort of people who, who actually did hostage training. They negotiated the people who they trained the people who negotiated hostages out. Um, and I learned so much then because negotiating and influencing they're the same. You know, what we do on a day to day basis, we're always negotiating to get our organisation's position or our, our own personal position. So. However good you are at something, there is the having training will make you better. But I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't really answer your question. I'll take you back to NHS England. Barbara, on that note, though, what's really interesting about that is you've just shown that leaders are not necessarily born. They, they need training, they need coaching, they need to learn these skills. And you, you recognised something, you know, an area that you weren't so good at and you addressed it. I think people just assume all these skills come naturally. So I think it was a really helpful detour. Yes, I, th- I, think, I think you, if you're going to be great at something, you probably have to have a natural ability. 
you know, I, I, you know, I don't think, I think Tiger Woods is natural. I think you could have taken me and given me as many lessons as I ever wanted. I would never have been Tiger Woods. So I think it's a combination of both. Um, but I do think, um, I think one of the things that leaders sometimes give the impression of is that they're good at everything and they don't have to, uh, they don't have to learn things. That's not true. I think great leaders are naturally quite good at some things. They're average at others and they work hard at recognizing that deficit. And sometimes it is about learning that skill yourself. You know, I've made a career out of pulling people around me and appointing people to work for me who are good at the things I wasn't good at. That's the whole point of a team. Again, I think too many leaders appoint their teams in their own likeness. Whereas actually, to be a really strong team, you want your people who will do the things you're not very good at. So I think we, we often make up for that with a team rather than trying to make up for our own personal shortfalls. But I do think that um, leaders do give the impression of being really good at everything, and we're not. We just probably don't do what we're not good at. If you're clever, you don't do what you're not good at. You, you talked, I think you talked really clearly about your strengths earlier. I was quite struck by that. You, you definitely know what you're good at, and I think that's important. But did you ever feel out of your depth you know, this imposter syndrome we talk about a lot, has that ever featured? Oh, absolutely. So I think, uh, you know, you are talking to somebody who's nearly 70 and it is much easier to sit back and talk about what your strengths and what your weaknesses are than when you're 30 to 40. I don't think I ever got rid of imposter syndrome. I mean, even now, and I've been, you know, out of the NHS and out of that big role for a lot of years, um, but I, you kind of think somebody will knock on the door and say, hang on a minute, what are you doing, doing this job? You should be, you know, you're, you're just a little thing who should do something else. So we've all, and, you know, I've talked to loads of very big senior leaders. So I think nearly everybody has imposter syndrome. But I do think there is something, and I'm back to my, I'm not tall, so I can't reach into tall cupboards. That's not something to be embarrassed about. I've got no artistic ability. Um, I'm extremely clumsy. That's not something that I need to kind of feel bad about. But in return for that, I'm quite clever and I'm really good at influencing people. And that's not something that I shouldn't be prepared to say. Just a matter of fact, it's how I am. And I think being able to have a, an even and balanced view of what you're good at and what you're bad at and work on that basis is really valuable. Thank you. Let's go back to your creation of NHS England. Right. Well, so, yeah, that's a bit that's a bit strong. There were lots of others in it. But in the early days, uh, in the very early days, because what, of course, happened, and this is back to the influencing skills. So, of course, Alan, uh, Andrew Lanzi turned up. Um, I was chief exec in the East Midlands working with David. You know, I think lots of people were distraught at the, what, he was, what, what Andrew Lanzi was going to do. He walked in, he had all these ideas, and it was apparent that he his whole attitude was Dr. Sugar in the NHS. There is a little bit in that. I remember once my chair in the East Midlands once said to me, after he knew nothing about the NHS, but after he'd been there a week or two, he said, Barbara, can I just ask you a question? He said, in the Navy, we, we always have sailors running the Navy. Why don't doctors run the NHS? Now, I'm not advocating that because I've worked with some absolutely brilliant managers and we need loads, loads of managers. And Lanzi was quite wrong about you know, the, the, the way we need this. I, I just think you need a balance. But Lansley was very committed to doctors and GPs in particular. And, and everybody was having such difficulty with him. I remember standing on a station at uh, East Midlands, uh, getting a call from David saying, Barbara needs to come down here. I need to stop doing the East Midlands and come down and help with Lansley because you were a GP of a background, maybe he'll listen to you. 
Um, and that was it. I kind of came out of sorting the SHA out and spent the, na- the next few months trying to do, and we all tried to do the best we could with a politician who had a vision and wasn't going to be budged from the vision for most of that. And I think, you know, David's view was that if anybody could influence this tall man, um, it would probably be me. And now some people say, well, you can do a very good job, but have a look what happened. To which my response is, you have no idea what it would have been like if I hadn't been there. You know, he had a vision of the NHS uh, commissioning board uh, having about six people on it and three secretaries, and that would have been the totality. Now, some would say there's a balance, and the NHS England has got maybe bigger than it should be. So my first role was to kind of help get the bill through Parliament and get to set it up. And then, in the very early days, my job was to set up, to start setting up NHS England, and I became the lead for CCG Commission Development. Because, you know, in the final analysis, what I'm an, I'm an expert at two things, I think, in, in the health system. One is commissioning and the other is primary care. You know, I know every bit of primary care. I've done it from the clinical. I've negotiated the GP contract. I've commissioned it at local PCT level. I've commissioned it at national level. So I think for me to set up the CCGs and to try and develop a, the new commissioning system through CCGs was right. But then it wasn't long after that that uh, Ian Dalton left and he was the chief operating officer. And again, slightly to my surprise, I don't think I've ever not been surprised when people had the faith in me to do different jobs. David asked me if uh, I would move into that operating officer role. Thank you, Barbara. I think we're getting an amazing journey of history here through the NHS. The number of three-letter acronyms is also you know, we've got so many new three-letter acronyms now, like ICSs. It's reminding me, I guess I wasn't around then, so I'm interested to hear where you've come from. I want to pick up on a few things you said there, if you don't mind. The first is really about Lansley and not necessarily making it personal to him, but you've clearly worked with more than one health secretary. And I would love to know, you know, what, what did you learn from working alongside politicians and maybe what advice you would give to doctors who have to try and work with politicians? So I think, you know, Andrew Lanza was a really good man who wanted the best for patients, who had his own ideas of how it would happen. You know, some people didn't agree with his ideas, but I don't think I've, I've ever worked with a Secretary of State or a minister who've been a bad person. Is managing politicians any different from trying to influence anybody else? Yes, it probably is. Um, I think. For most of them, you do need to remember they need to get re-elected. Uh, and I know that's a bit of a cynical thing to say because most of them are good people and in the time they're in office, they want to do good for the population. That's why they're there. But I think, you know, you have to remember that in the background they need to get re-elected. So the, the amount they're influenced by popular opinion is important. But I always felt that there was a need to remember that they were the democratically elected representatives of the people. End of story. And we, you know, we we might not have liked uh, some of the things that they were saying, but you know, I think my job, I, you know, as a civil, because I was kind of half NHS manager, half civil servant. But you know, in the final analysis, the civil servants are there to, you know, to to do to make the best of what the politicians want, but in the end, to accept their that we live in a democracy and and if, if it wasn't that way because you know we as NHS managers we may have been appointed but we don't have any legitimate democratic right 
But again, I think you just have to use, you know, you have to present a really cogent argument about why what, what they're doing needs to be modified. You have to be able to be, to get under their skins. I think, you know, if they like you, if they really believe that you're, you have to make them believe you really are doing the best for them. You have to be somebody, I think, I hope if anybody looked back, you know, said, well, what would they say about Barbara, you know, in my time, particularly in the department and NHS England, I think a lot of people say Barbara makes stuff happen. I, you know, I think that, that, that pleases me. Um, and I think if they know you'll make stuff happen for them, if you can say to them, well, I can make that happen, but I can't make that happen, then then they'll believe that. So it's it's just different working to politicians. It's just a different environment. But you have to you have to respect who they are and why they're there. This might be a bit cheeky, but who was your favourite health minister to work with? Uh, Jeremy Hunt. Okay, um, why did you say that? Uh, sometimes these things are about personal, really, rather than, you know, Jeremy came in a difficult time and there was all sorts to pick up. He was, he wasn't the easiest Secretary of State to work with. Um, you know, he had very fixed ideas. He, because um, my other favourite was Alan Milburn, so maybe, the, and there's a lot of similarities between the two. They were both heavily involved. You know, that some Secretaries of State just want to, kind of do the very high level stuff. Um, some secretary state just want one cause. I remember John Reid, you know, he was like, I'm not going to interfere with running the NHS. You guys do that. I'm just going to um, give me one thing to do. And it was MRSA that he did, he did very well. But Jeremy and Alan Milburn, Jeremy Hunt and Alan Milburn were, they wanted to roll their sleeves up and get in among it and have a really, really serious influence on the management side, which for some people, some people didn't like. But I was happy doing it because they were both very bright. They both were very innovative. Yeah, they they both had their moments. They weren't, I say, they weren't the easiest uh, men to work with, but they were good fun. So we were talking about we were talking about CCGs, and you set up CCGs. But now, however many years later, CCGs are being dismantled effectively, and the new three-letter acronym that is dominating headlines is ICSs, Integrated Care Systems. It's such a, a great opportunity because I'm speaking to someone who has a, such a perspective on the history of the NHS and where we've come from, and perhaps could offer some insights about where we're going. So I'd love to ask you about what you think about these, you know, the new restructuring of the NHS. And a part of me wonders whether you think, have we done the right thing, dismantling SHA? So it sort of feels like we're going back towards that. What do you think about the direction of travel at the moment? So I think there are two things going on here and they often get conflated. Um, and, and one of them is the sort of purchaser-provider split and the introduction of tariff and the very rules-based payment mechanisms that we went through for a decade where we were trying to copy the Americans. Uh, and running alongside that, the reorganisations, which tend to sort of run from central control. I think, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, politicians and the system always thinks if things aren't going, they always think if things aren't going very well, they'll rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic and uh, it, it's just inevitable and you have to think about it. So do I feel, oh, my word, the CCGs that I invented are now being dismantled? No, entirely philosophical. Frankly, I'm surprised they've lasted as long as they have. 
A wise old SHA chief executive once said to me, there are only two things that prevail in the health system. One's the hospital and one's the practice. And the rest just gets moved around. And if you look at all the various organisations we've had, and you're going back, how much difference was there between PCGs and CCGs, primary care groups and clinical groups? Probably not a lot. So, But what I do think happened was I think that when I first came into management, and you remember I cut my teeth on the purchaser-provider split and tariff because that was what brought fund holding into play. Um, and I think fund holding, it wasn't just about the money. It was ha- one of the important things it tried to do was to give doctors an influence on how the overall budget was spent. People underestimate the omission or commission of the doctor's pen, all clinicians' pen, but it is predominantly doctors and it is predominantly GPs, is what spends so much of the NHS budget. So if you look at all the changes we've gone through over the years, we've always been trying to get frontline practitioners to have more responsibility for the overall budget to make it do the best it can for all patients rather than just the one patient that's in front of them. So I think that in doing that, we, we kind of got the purchase provider split. But in the days before that, then a local patch got a, had a health authority. That health authority kind of tried to draw together all the GPs and the hospitals on the patch. The health authority got an allocation. And then the great and the good across the patch came together and decided how to do that. Why isn't that very different from where we're going? So it kind of worries me a bit that people think they're inventing something that's brand new. But I do think the purchaser-provider split and the rigid adherence to tariff hasn't helped us. It couldn't work in the UK. We don't have enough hospitals. In the US, they do, the money really does follow the patients. And if hospitals go bust, they just go bust. That's an end to it. They've got plenty more and patients will go a different way. We can't do that here. So if our hospitals don't get enough money through tariff, we've always just had to give them more. So I'm really pleased that that strict adherence to the, you know, strict adherence to the financial flows and going back to the people who understand what needs to be done locally, getting together with patients and citizens uh, and frontline clinicians and working out what's best. I, I am absolutely committed to that model, and I think that's where we're going. What slightly worries me about this model is the size of some of these ICSs because. You know, there is no doubt that you need a body to have oversight. But usually that level is too big to do frontline day-to-day operational management because it's too far away from where people live and where they where their local authority is. The whole concept is right. And the white paper does make a lot of place and saying place will be important. But place for me is everything. And places where I would have put the, the, that, that control and places usually broadly the boundary of a local authority and broadly with one big acute trust sitting in the middle of it. And with the new white paper, that place does not have a statutory body. So a lot of hard work's going to have to be done to, for the ICSs to then devolve and delegate to something which has no budget ability, no financial, because it, it's not a statutory body. And I, I just would like to see how that's going to play out. Thank you. That's a really useful perspective to have. And as you were describing SHAs there, it actually made me wonder whether our response to COVID would have been different if SHAs were still in existence, that ability to really think about what your local population needs. I I absolutely agree. Um, And as an SHA chief exec, 
the amount of time my team and I spent on emergency planning scenarios and how we would deal with them. And I think a lot of that was lost when SHAs went. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, I will unashamedly say that if we'd had the SHAs, they might have been bad at some things, but they would have been good at COVID. So Barbara, I'm really conscious of your time. I have, I, mean, I have so many more questions I would like to ask, but I'll try and I'll try not to. <laughs> Before we do our final three, maybe on a more optimistic note, for people listening as well that are young leaders just at the start of their careers as GPs, are you optimistic about the future of primary care post-COVID? I I think primary care will always be at the heart of the UK NHS. It's the envy of almost every society in the world. But the problem with primary care is it's always struggled to have its right influence. So in terms of managing patients, I think it'll be fine. And I think it'll have learned lots of lessons about remoteness uh, and, and will have you know, done lots of great things that it'll be secure. It always would be secure. But how does primary care have an influence? Because all too often the units are too small for, for that sort of influence. And whatever we did with PC, primary care groups, primary care trusts and CCGs as they evolved... What we've done is we've drawn GPs together in bigger groups. We've allowed leaders to emerge. And, and those leaders have then been able to sit at the table uh, with, with leaders from acute and mental health trusts and local authorities and be the voice of primary care. So the only thing, again, that slightly worries me about this is, is how do we maintain that? Because PCNs are quite small and ICSs are quite big. And how do you get that clinical leadership at place, which fits in between the two? If primary care could only find a way of coming together, and I know the independent contractor status, and I have too many scars from trying to persuade practices to work together from the early days in Bradford right through to nationally to recognise that we aren't going to see overall massive practices like they have in the States. But I don't think you need that, but I think... The alliance between practices across a geographical patch. Doctors always want to go back to the other. We want to do it with like-minded. Sorry, that doesn't work because that's not the way we do patient services. It's across a geography, so get over it. If we could find them a way of getting together and having their leaders emerge and be that strong voice that can sit at the table, because you're never going to have 10 voices sitting at the table because, the, you know, in terms of decision-making in, in place, um, you know, once you've got more than six or seven people around the table, you just talk, you don't make decisions. So I think that's where general practice has to work out where it's how it's going to manage itself. Thank you. I think that's a really useful challenge and a question to ponder. So, Barbara, our final three questions, if that's OK, that we ask everyone that comes on the next GenCast. And I know that you're expecting these. So I'm very intrigued to see what you'll say. <laughs> The first is, could you recommend a book or a, a resource about leadership for people that are listening? I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not much of one for books. I'm a real Philistine. You know, I love watching <laughs> Coronation Street and, and read the occasional absolutely crappy thriller when I'm on holiday. I've learned from people. Uh, you know, I've, I've already mentioned it. I've, you know, I've always learned from leaders. I've learned from people who worked from me. But in a way, you get the opportunity to watch other leaders at work and and in situations. That's been the biggest resource for me. I'm a people watcher. You know, that's what I do with patients, a people analyzer. That's what I did in general practice. 
Um, and I think, and I won't name any of them on, on this occasion, I think that uh, I learned as much from people I rubbed shoulders with who I thought did things wrong than I thought did things right. Some people do learn from the written resource and this thing, but the best learning in life comes from watching others. Thank you. And hearing their stories as well, which is exactly why yeah. we're, we're having this conversation today. I think that's a really good point. So the second question is, and given that you've worked with some of the top brass in the NHS and probably have more inside knowledge about people than anyone else, I'm also very curious about this one. So a role model that you've had as a leader and why? I think the best leader that I have seen and I have learned from, and it kind of pains me to say this because he'll think it was puke-worthy for me to say it, (laughs) because he's still around, but it has to be David Nicholson. I learned so much from David. You know, he was in that room of all those people at our time. I didn't say very much because David is a quiet man. But when he spoke, you know, you knew that what he said was going to be profound. But I think, you know, and I learned how to manage because he was a great manager. He didn't have every bit of in interpersonal skill uh, because he was kind of quiet and shy he was never you know I think to get the best out of people you have to tell them that when they're very good and David was kind of too shy to tell you you were very good uh, you know it was something he didn't do very often in fact but I, I heard a story once that helped me uh, working with David because it was a sort of it was about an elderly couple and the elderly woman said to the man you never tell me you love me my friend Mabel her husband tells her he loves her all the time and you never tell me you love me. What's wrong with you? To which the elderly gentleman said, look, I told you I loved you when we got engaged 67 years ago. If it changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> I, so that was how I dealt with working for David because, you know, you know, if you were doing something wrong, he should tell you. But actually, if you were, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't one who praised all the time. And to be honest, I think that is important. But everything else that David did, you know, he was so... He was fair. You know, for me, being fair is absolutely important. He took people with him. He could stand in front of a huge audience at an NHS confederation and every held everybody in that room. You know, most of us would have jumped off a cliff for David. And you have to be able to work out when people are working for you, one of the biggest things is managing performance. And... Uh, David would, was able to, and I learned this from him, put people into three categories. So they were either the best person for the job, and even if it was going badly, he would defend them to the hilt. And I've seen him do that with people, two ministers who thought, this is going really wrong, you should get rid of Fred. And he would say, Fred's the best person to do it. Fred can't do it, nobody can. You'll have to get past me before you get to Fred. He could recognise the people who were trying really hard, but who were actually just above their ability and they're struggling with it and those he would always help to move those people into something that was better suited to them and then the people who just weren't didn't have the interests of the patients and the health system at, at, at their hearts and for those he and I you know we were firm that you know this was this was not acceptable and we dealt with it hopefully in a compassionate manner um, but we dealt with it. And so I, you know, I could go on forever about what I learned from David, but you know, I think, I think that managing uh, people's performance was, um, and the, the categorization was one of the, the best things I ever saw. 
Thank you. I love the, I love the question because I love the chance that we get to pull people out. And in fact, you've made <laughs> me you've made me think I should invite him on the podcast if he might agree, because I think he'd be very interesting to talk to. He would indeed. So the final question, Barbara, is your top three tips for new leaders listening to this. Um, for me, I think this is a difficult one and I could ramble, but I'll be fairly straightforward. For me, the most important thing for people to see is to be fair. So for me, the absolute sense of fair is what's held me always. I tried, I hope, at all times to be fair to absolutely everybody who worked with me, for me, and for whom I worked. I think the second thing is that you do have to be firm. You know, a, a leader, you know, I, I, again, I hope my leadership style was build consensus, um, and then that gives you the direction of travel. But People don't want a leader that's flippy floppy and, you know, can't make decisions. So when consensus can't be reached, you have to be able to say, thank you very much. I've listened to everything that you've all had to say. Take this on board, but we're going that way. And then the final thing is have fun. So I guess I've done three Fs. I didn't really intend to. You have to have fun. We are at, at work too many hours. But leaders who are, and I can think of many leaders who are not fun and who do not make it a laugh uh, to work. And, you know, you can take a job very seriously and do it very well and have fun along the way. And again, if I have a legacy, I would hope that maybe most of the people who work for me would say, yeah, Barbara was the three Fs. But mainly I would hope they would say I was fun. Brilliant. I'd also add fierce to that in a kind way. I think you, you're a fierce personality and I've absolutely loved speaking to you. That was fascinating. This is another ref for you. But I think I was just thinking about the sort of three big things I took away from that conversation that are so powerful that I'm going to think about for a bit longer. But I was really struck by your talk about influence and how as GPs, we are natural influencers as well. And so every day in general practice, we are also honing our leadership skills. And the second thing I was really struck by was, as I said, you're very clear about what your strengths are. You're clear about what you can't do and being small and clumsy and so on. But you're very clear about what your strengths are and how that's important as a leader. And the third thing was just the fascinating perspective I've had about the history of the NHS, where we've come Mm -hmm. from, where we are now and where we're going. So I feel like Dame Barbara Haken, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you. So that was episode 17 with the absolutely fascinating Dame Barbara Haken. As ever, if you want to keep in the loop with NextGen, sign up to our national bulletin at bit.ly forward slash bulletin. And we'll see you next time for episode 18 and we'll be celebrating one year of the NextGen cast. See you next time. <laughs>